here today with Benet Berta, a pioneer in the sustainable fashion industry. Benet, you started your career working for an organic food company, but you ended up in apparel. How did you make that transition? <laughs> the unlikely story, yes. So I was an early adopter of organic food and organic agriculture. And one of our farmers was growing all of our blue corn for this blue corn tortilla chip that we were making. We were one of the first to market blue corn tortilla chips. When the first part of the harvest came out, we had these dark, rich, deep blue chips. And as we were pulling from later parts of the harvest, the chips were actually turning lighter. I asked him if he could do something in the field to help fix the color of the corn. He decided to try adding cotton into his crop rotation. Part of sustainable agriculture involves rotating crops in your field. And he had some theory about fixing certain nutrients in the field if he grew it the season before the corn. So long story short, he planted 200 acres of cotton that year. I was used to him being this renegade farmer who would try all these different things. The industry was very small back then, and the relationship you had with your farmers, you usually sold what they grew, or at least you tried to sell what they grew. So he called me in the spring and said, my cotton's growing, and I said, great. And then he called me a couple months later and said, you know, I'm gonna yield a crop from this cotton. And I said, okay, well, good for you. And he said, well, you need to sell it. And I was like, Jim, I sell food. It's not food, you can't eat it. I don't know what you're talking about. Who cares about organic cotton? He was like, but Benet, it's organic, it's organic. So then we started researching cotton and found out how absolutely devastating it is for the environment. Five of the top nine pesticides that are classified the dirtiest pesticides by the EPA are used on cotton. All this stuff is sprayed from crop dusters over fields where it can drift and you know go into farm workers. I was from the generation of blue jeans, so we just wore t-shirts and blue jeans. Our entire wardrobe was cotton. Mind you, once I found out how complicated the supply chain in clothing production is, which you know so well, I was just overwhelmed and completely underwater. We actually invested a quarter million dollars in this crop and had no clue what we were going to make out of it, nor how to convert it from this beautiful stuff in the field to finished product. I want to stop you there for one second and go back to crop rotation, which I thought was interesting. What other organic farming methods have you seen work? Mm -hmm. So back in the day, we bought all our cotton from U.S. farmers. We tried to convince every farmer we knew to put cotton into crop rotation after our experience in Texas. And they generally rotated with the legume, with a bean. Then they either grew straw or clover or let the fields fallow. So it was generally a three-year rotation here in the U.S. I've worked on four different continents now, I think, with agricultural commodity growers and cotton farmers, and most of them use a very similar rotation. As the industry has grown, rotation has become, certainly in the food industry, almost an antiquated philosophy of how to grow organically. And I think that's what's causing this whole rebirth with small scale and regenerative agriculture. In Burkina Faso, West Africa, I was working with a group of small scale farmers down there and they started doing a lot more intercropping. Small scale farmers, not in North America, have much smaller farms than we're used to in the US. Shade trees are part of what farmers put into their field. They do that mainly for the farm workers so that they have a place to go to drink water, to be in the shade out from the hot boiling sun. But now people are doing a lot more intercropping. And the first place I saw it was Burkina a couple of years ago with okra. It's fascinating because weevils are very prevalent in cotton fields and they're this mealy, wormy looking thing. They love okra. 
and okra grows and produces a pod earlier than the cotton. And the weevils would go into the okra plant and just eat until their heart's content and leave the cotton plants alone until the cotton plants got to the bowling stages and they were protected from the weevils. Intercropping is being used all over the place now. And in West Africa and Eastern Africa, Tanzania, where we're working now, they're doing the same thing. Interesting. You mentioned regenerative agriculture, which is something that I'm hearing more and more about. Can you talk about where that's coming from? Well, as the organic food movement kept growing and growing, the farm size invariably got larger and larger. And this is what's kept small-scale farmers so down in so many parts of the world as well. I mean, in this country, you think of commodity farming, you think of the Great Plains and fields and fields and fields of monoculture, right? Many times that's one farmer buying more and more land and just learning how to efficiently grow on mega acreage. In other countries, oftentimes farmers become part of groups and the groups negotiate brokered prices for commodities. So the farmers are still kind of forced into the situation where they're growing the same crop in the field over and over and over. With the organic standards of the world, in my opinion, getting more and more lax and allowing more and more approved substances to be used in the form of chemicals and fertilizers and pesticides, organic became more about large acreage and less about individual farmers and crop rotation. I didn't even know this happened. It kind of snuck up on me because our farmers have always rotated, but I was at organic events four, five, six years ago and people started talking about rotating. And I was like, well, our rotation is this and that. And other commodity brokers were saying, oh, your farmers still rotate their crops? Like it was old fashioned, like it wasn't part of systemic organic agriculture anymore. I think that as that whole movement got so large, and as national organic rules became prevalent in so many countries, it was almost like the local food movement, a new kind of let's get back to what organics really was at the beginning. And let's really talk about treating our soil with respect and really talk about working with nature. And carbon sequestration is, of course, part of that. And I think that's where the whole regenerative movement came from. What I'm hearing you say is the organic food movement started as an attempt to rethink our agricultural system and has in many ways morphed into simply checking the boxes for certifications. Right. And akin to the fair trade movement, it hasn't been as much about small scale producers and keeping things contained, keeping things on a smaller scale. Yeah. When larger corporations purchase products made with commodities, then of course there's pressure to grow more, faster, faster, more just like what's happened in the fashion industry at the production level. So as a direct response to that, I think organic wasn't organic anymore. And regenerative farming kind of, to me, is more of a back to the organic movement, back to true organic farming. I mean, if you compare sustainable fashion to organic food and look at H&M slapping a conscious collection label on a mass-produced product, as you start to reach those volumes, the definition of it gets watered down. I think it's interesting. I mean, I've been referred to as a purist through my career on organic and fair trade and all that. And I think that when you look at maybe 15 years ago, when Nike first started getting into organic cotton, they were into this blending program where first 1% and then 1.5% and then 2% of their cotton was going to be organic by a certain time period. 
we all kind of poo-pooed that. And in fact, when we were first writing the legislation that became the National Organic Rule, and it's still in the GOT standard that you can't have an organic and a commercial component in the same finished product. If you can source it organically, then you must source every part of that in this case, cotton as organic. That was directly designed to sort of decry these larger companies blending X percentage of cotton into their collections. But now when people do what you're just talking about and develop these larger collections that are all organic, and suddenly there's this super big price pressure to get volume up to the levels that they need in order to supply them, then we start questioning, well, what does that do at the farm gate to pressure the farmers to have to grow more and more and more? What does that lead to? That's when you think about the watering down of standards. Interesting. I'd love to talk about some very recent news coming out of India and tied to news in China around the production of organic cotton. Yeah. I don't know how many people really understand the process of getting garments certified to organic, but there are many independent, some for-profit, some not-for-profit certifying groups that are sanctioned by certain governments, whether it's the EU in general, the US or other countries, as being acceptable as certifiers for organic product in that country. So the USDA has a list of probably 50 to 75 certifying agents some for-profit, some not-for-profit, that you can use to get your garment and or your raw material certified under the USDA umbrella, under the National Organic Program. So in India, I just started working there like five years ago, which for a 30-year-old company is not a big part of our history. And one of the main reasons I never worked there before five years ago was because it always seemed too easy to get organic product out of India. Like there were so many different dye houses and finishing houses and cut and sew houses and farmers, brokers that had organic product. It was always kind of suspect. In fact, for the first two years we worked there, I didn't know the farmers that I was buying from, which for us was a brand new thing. We always started from the ground up. We always knew our farmers first. And I couldn't get to the farmers. I would say to whoever I was working with, a dye house or a knitter or whatever, well, I need to know who the farmers are. I want to actually see the certificate and meet these guys. And they would send me to an office and say, these are the farmers. And it would be an office in the middle of a city, Calcutta or somewhere. And it was like, this isn't a group of farmers. This is a buying office. Where are they actually getting their crop? So when I finally broke into the system and got directly to the farmers, there was always suspect talk about there's so much organic cotton coming out of India. It was either the largest or the second largest producer of organic textiles. You always heard these anecdotal stories about potentially fraud. Well, there's this lot tracking system through organic where you have to have a transaction certificate for every lot of cotton. It has to go all the way back to the farm and through to the finished product so that you can, in theory, trace your product. And as more and more larger players got involved, I heard more and more anecdotal stories of certifiers being bought off or you know, transaction certificates not matching the amount of cotton grown in specific regions, et cetera. And what happened in December of this year, I believe it was, is that 50% of the organic cotton coming out of India has been now decertified, as in it was claiming to be organic and it was proven that it was fraudulent. It's just one of those situations where, you know, you hear rumors, 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 and then all of a sudden, poof, 50% of the cotton in India is no longer organic. Whoa, you know? As you mentioned, this happened at the same time that the Uyghur enslavement camps in China started getting all the publicity. 
They've been going on for a while. And ironically, most of the organic cotton that's grown by China was coming from this region where the Uyghur camps are. So the EU and the U.S. forbid people from bringing commodities made from that state in China. At the same time, this cotton all got decertified in India. So it's been a total upheaval. That's huge. It's huge. It's huge. What are some of the implications of that in terms of pricing and availability? What does that mean for the farmers who are currently growing organic? We buy directly from farmer groups, both in Tanzania and in India, and we prepay for our crop. Very few people do that. We had just paid our farmers in India right before all of this happened, so our source of supply was secure, and they, in fact, were segregating our cotton and saying nothing's wrong. But as soon as everything got decertified, all these larger companies started coming to our source of supply, our farmer groups, and the price is being driven up. Even though we have a contract for a certain amount of money that we're paying, we're going to be paying more when the harvest comes in because we know the farmers could get more if they didn't sell to us. So in reality, the remaining farmers that are truly organic, it's only helping them. Their supply and demand and their demand's going up. Overall, I think it's really good for the industry because you try to put together the most ethical supply chains you can. And then when there's this area of the world where there's all this underpinning, talking rumblings of half of this stuff isn't organic and it's not really real and whatever, you're just kind of waiting for a shoe to drop. If you look at price being a thing that many brands are worried about when it comes to building organic supply chains, I think it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. You want the farmers to be able to get a better price for their crops, but as that supply gets squeezed, how many brands that were interested or committed to organic cotton stay that way? Right. It will be interesting. And coming out of this pandemic, there's so much talk about what's going to happen with this sustainable movement. So far, our sales are only going up and larger players are talking to us about programs and wanting to get really involved in sustainability. That talk in the industry is really going to happen when the supply demands keep going higher and higher and the end result is a product that costs more. I don't know. If you look at how fractured supply chains were at the start of the pandemic and the relationship between brands and factories that is already fraught but has become, with the cancellation of orders and the slowdown of orders, even more filled with tension, I thought that there might be a moment for more transparency. And instead, I've heard some accounts of brands going back to factories that they already were taking advantage of or putting harsh terms on and saying, we know how desperate you are and we're going to ask you to produce cheaper. We're going to do net 120 terms instead of net 90. You've always had a strong relationship with your supply chain. You've also, for a small brand, had a very significant impact on the suppliers that you work with. And one of the reasons is that you've been focused on supporting alternative ownership structures. Yeah. Like most things in my career, I think I first got exposed to the idea of worker ownership by accident. I was so focused on agricultural commodities when I started Maggie's Organics that I truly was ignorant about workers in the mid-chain supply chain. I paid attention to the farmers and then I got to know the sowers, but the mid-chain suppliers I really didn't pay any attention to. And the way I got interested in or the way I even found out that a worker ownership model was possible was because I had started selling a lot of t-shirts, which are America's great disposable commodity, because I was saving acres of land. My, my company was all about for every two t-shirts I sell, that's a 
pound of cotton. And for every pound of cotton that I can convert from chemical agriculture to organic agriculture, that's going to help the world. And so that was my motivation for everything. Well, then I was doing all my own production of my own yarn and my own fabric and my own dyes because there were no organic standards. We were just trying to do it as clean as possible. Then I would go take my fabric to these t-shirt houses, these production facilities that were built for 1,200 or 2,000 people in North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee. And they were working at like 30 to 40% capacity because so much of the U.S. apparel industry was already moving offshore. It was moving to Mexico and then Central America and then Africa and then Asia. And so here I'm coming to this factory and saying, I've got all your raw materials. This is a basic t-shirt. It's the simplest garment in the world to sew. Your factory was designed to sew these mass scale. How soon can I get this order? And I would get a quote of three weeks and four weeks or five weeks or six weeks later, I still wouldn't have the order. And then the craftsmanship was just terrible. I'd get these calls from the end users saying, you know, I've got shoulder seams that aren't sewn right or whatever. I couldn't figure out how this was possible. I was working with contractors that had too much capacity and I was making a very basic garment, yet I couldn't get an order on time. So I just started spending more time in the facilities. And again, this was all in the U.S. And that's when I really learned firsthand who produces clothing. 90% of the people in the facilities were women. They were undereducated or completely uneducated. They were single heads of households many times, and they got paid by the piece. So if they were a hemmer, they only paid attention to their hem, because if they did, 100 hems a day, they would get minimum wage. And for every hem beyond the 100, they would get an extra two cents or five cents or 15 cents. So they weren't invested in the whole product they were making for me. They could care less about my timeline and that I had to have these orders in a certain timely fashion. They just paid attention to their hem, right? That's when I started saying to myself, wait a minute, I'm trying to convert acres of land and save the earth and sustain life. And I can't sustain the lives of these women. I mean, they're breaking their backs to make barely minimum wage. They can't even feed their children. So that was when I really said, we've got to change the model. The model's just broken. And we've got to somehow create a facility where every worker cares not about her hem, but about her whole t-shirt. And that's when we ran into an NGO in Nicaragua. They were dealing with victims of Hurricane Mitch. They were trying to find employment for people as opposed to charity. And we said, well, do any of these women know how to sew? And they said, well, yeah, sure. There's a sweatshop industry in Nicaragua and there's free trade zones. Why? Well, we need to build a facility where every worker has a vested interest in our success. How can we do that? And they said to me, what about a worker-owned cooperative? And I was like, oh, you know, the only co-ops I knew were food co-ops. I said, oh, yeah, let's try that model. That sounds really like it'll work. Did it work? So that co-op worked for a while like a dream. The women built it from the ground up, literally built the building themselves. We put in a t-shirt line, a basics line, and then we put in a more upscale line to do first camisoles and just a little more upscale knit garment so that we could use the t-shirt line as a training line. And then once people started wanting to make more money and feeling better about their ability to sew, then we'd transfer them. It worked for probably three or four years, and then it completely crashed and burned. 
I've asked myself so many times, you know, what really happened? What was the real root of that? And my only answer is we were working in Managua in Nueva Vida specifically, which is a suburb of Managua. Nicaragua is the second poorest country in the hemisphere next to Haiti. Nueva Vida means new life in Spanish, and it's basically a relocation village for victims of natural disasters, which happen in Nicaragua all the time, just happened this year. So the women were truly worker owners. They truly had a democratic system. Every worker had a vote on every major decision they made, but they were, I believe, in their hearts, they just thought they were going to fail. So I used to tell them, for every step forward, you take two steps back. Every time I tell you this is a great order, the next order comes in and it's terrible. It was almost a psychological thing where I truly believe they sabotaged themselves. I still believe in the model and I believe that in its purest form, man, it was, they were capable of sewing things that they had no business sewing and doing a damn good job at it. And it was all because I believe they were vested in their own business and they knew that this was their way to feed their families. But we started our next co-op in North Carolina in the United States, Opportunity Threads, which you know, we were involved with an NGO that was really hands-on and kind of running the place. That project worked very, very well. Our dream in Nicaragua was to build a vertical supply chain that was all worker-owned. And I still believe that that is possible. I guess I just didn't have the wherewithal to do it myself. And, you know, talk about slow money and slow investing. I mean, I sacrificed a lot of growth in my company to stay loyal to my mission there, which was I won't develop any products if you can't sell them. You know, I'm only going to develop what you can sell. You mentioned just briefly free trade zones, and I believe this facility was the first worker-owned company that ended up being in an area designated as a free trade zone. How do those types of policies play into supporting small businesses in this industry? They were the first, as far as I know, they're still the only worker-owned free trade zone. Well, they're not in business right now, but in the world, in any industry, and it was wonderful. The women became so capable, they had to import all their own thread because they couldn't buy from the free trade zone thread offices because they weren't designated a free trade zone. And then they couldn't buy boxes and they couldn't buy labels at the same places that all the free trade zones could. The Sandinistas were still in power, I think, at that moment, or had just gotten back into power in Nicaragua. And the Sandinistas are more in line with cooperatives. And so they just basically went to the free trade zone office and said, we want to become a free trade zone. And they kind of got laughed out of the office. But then they went to the Sandinista government and said, how do we do this? They had to set up another organization as kind of a header group above their cooperative in order to get the status they needed to become the free trade zone. Took about three and a half years. We raised a couple hundred thousand dollars for them, helped raise so they could do it, but they did it. And once they were a free trade zone, it made life so much easier. That's when I thought they were really going to take off and explode. But by that time, there was all this sabotage and jealousy and internal issues happening inside the company. Free trade zones don't necessarily always have a great name, so it's interesting to hear them applied in a way that is positive and not detrimental to the local economy. Right. What other policies have you seen work in supporting more sustainable business practices in the industry? Well, I wouldn't say policies as much as things like the global organic textile standards. When we first 
wrote those. We were a splinter group of the Organic Trade Association. And, you know, there were a lot of people starting to talk about organic clothing. And there were a lot of people who were starting to market organic clothing that didn't have a clue what that really meant. Like they thought if they just bought organic cotton, they wouldn't have to control anything through the whole production cycle. We started saying, you know, that's not really fair. I mean, if you're going to call something organic, then you need to make sure the machine oils that are used are controlled and the dye stuffs don't cause cancer. The effluent water is maintained. So we started writing the standard with the help of the Organic Trade Association, and we used the fledgling organic food standards at the time as our model. So we actually came up with categories of finished product based on the percentage of organic materials in each product that mimicked food. And then those became part of the Organic Trade Association's doctrine. We thought that they would become part of the National Organic Rule when, as you recall, the first National Organic Rule came out and it allowed sewage sludge and irradiated food and a whole bunch of other things. It actually got more comments at the federal government than any other law of its time in history. And so they pulled that law and then they started with a new law. The second time the National Organic Rule was going to become law, we actually thought that all of our efforts to make standards at every stage of production for what you could call organic in textiles would become part of that law. And then in their inimitable way, the USDA decided to only mention clothing in the preamble of the rule and only suggested that people should follow this voluntary set of standards. So to me, that's an example of rules and regulations not working to our favor, though I will say that even that sanction by the government gave us the ability to go to new companies that we were working with, supply chain partners, and say, here's the blueprint, you got to follow this. It gave us a guide. Certainly, legislative efforts could help so much in not just organic, but in treating people with respect and dignity and making sure that supply chains are truly sustainable. But I don't have a lot of success stories relative to that. I'm hoping that one that we touched on on a previous interview with Aisha Berenblatt becomes a success story with the yes. Senate Bill 62 and adding a minimum wage for garment workers in L.A. I mean, that's certainly a start, even just to get standards for hourly wages versus piecework or minimum monthly would be a start. But in this country, if we could just get everyone to live by trade laws who was producing apparel in this country, that would be a huge start. Where do you see domestic apparel manufacturing going in the next stretch? I know you continue to do some, but it certainly isn't the core of your production at this point. Well, it actually is still more than 50% of our production, but it is only socks. Well, that's just because of volume, but it is only socks. So more than 50% of our dollar production is made in the USA. It is made from imported materials because of our relationship to the farmers. We could still, on a weekly basis, switch our socks to being offshore and probably save 25 to 30% of the cost of production. It's just part of our ethos now. It's part of our story. We've been through seeing so many mills close and seeing the survival of the fittest. I mean, working with sock manufacturers who are knitters, who are third and fourth generation, and they've hung on and, you know, they're now very secure and our contracts with them are very secure that we will never, I don't think, move offshore with our socks. Unfortunately, with apparel, it's not so much about the cutting and sewing, because even when we started to go up North Carolina, we could get our products sewn in the U.S., but to get our entire supply chain in the U.S., 
beyond the yarn, maybe even yarn forward, it would just be a very big challenge for us. You've seen the whole industry decimated, spinning, dye houses, like they're just missing chunks. Uh-huh. Is that what it is? I think a lot of it is that. I think we're losing the expertise, especially at those mid-supply chain levels. So we do it with two dyers, both in North Carolina, and one is an immigrant company. The guy who owns the plant is Egyptian, and it's just a really interesting story. And the other one is an old-scale dye house that's been around Meridian. I think you and I have talked about them before, and has kind of come out of the ashes and held on. But, you know, even using that as an example, so Meridian dyes, I think all of our wool now and maybe not our cotton. I can't keep track of it. But COVID-wise, tubing is a very important part of dyeing. And it's just, you've got to have the right tension and tubers are, it's a skill set that very few people still have. We had socks this past fall that we were having all sorts of quality control issues with, or we would have late orders from them. And finally, we got to the root of the problem in Meridian. And they said, well, all the tubers were getting the national unemployment check for $1,200 or whatever it was. So we lost all our tubers. I'm like, you guys, this is an international pandemic and you let your tubers leave. I mean, go find them a dying art form. I think that, yes, you're hitting the nail on the head that there's a lack of skill because the industry has been gone for so long. And I think that there's just maybe the owners of these companies aren't willing to do what it takes to bring the skill set back. Well, you and I have touched on that. You're a former board member at Isaac. And I think that we're tackling one small piece of it, but just understand at every operating level from spinning to knitting to linking or cutting and sewing across the board, these are skills that are not something that maybe basic cutting and sewing you can pick up relatively quickly, but production quality at an efficient pace across the whole supply chain is not easy. I think it's interesting that you're doing socks because socks is a much more automated category relative to some of the other pieces that you make. With Because Capital, the investment firm that I'm working on, socks is one of the ones at the top of our list because of that. There are numerous facilities that are doing 15, 20 million dollars a year or more production Mm -hmm. and a bunch of smaller ones, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily the case in many other categories in the industry. Right. But you've also been involved recently with potential joint ventures where maybe the technology from another country is going to come here. Yes? Yeah. I think that even if you look at how Shinola set up in Detroit, where they were bringing in masters and worked with a foreign partner who had those skill sets, mm-hmm. as we look at a number of different categories, that is the path forward. Because to try to build that from scratch without basic experience, we tried that at Laszlo. <laughs> when you have as little experience as I did, and then you try to you know start in a category, it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. So maybe the pandemic is a great equalizer for all of that too. Certainly people are, I think, more creative and entrepreneurial right now. I really do think domestic manufacturing has a role to play in the overall supply chain. I don't think it's everything, Mm -hmm. but it just feels like there are products and parts of a bunch of different categories that from a speed perspective and from a cost of raw material perspective, it's reasonable Mm -hmm. to do here. I agree. So you've worked on projects that have been impacted by climate change already. Can you tell us about how this is a factor and where you're sourcing? Sure. We started contracting with all U.S. farmers, and our intent was never to go offshore with our contracts for cotton. We thought, why not stay in North America? And then biofuels started happening, and 
farmers were literally not planting cotton anymore because they could make more money growing corn for biofuels. And so a couple of them reneged on contracts I had, which was very challenging. We were a small company and we had deadlines and we didn't have a backup source of supply. Then after we started this co-op in Nicaragua, the NGO we were working with did a lot of exporting of commodities, food commodities. And I asked again, are any of the farmers interested in growing cotton? Well, cotton had been Nicaragua's largest export commodity before the Santa Mesa revolution, but they had been sold a bill of goods by hybridized cotton and they had ruined so much of their soil by spraying it to heck with all these pesticides that they couldn't even grow cotton anymore. So we worked with an agricultural university in Managua to develop a strain of cotton that was specific to the Nicaraguan climate. We got a few farmers here and there that were part of this whole food group to say, okay, well, we'll do a little bit of cotton this year. And we got enough of them that we actually harvested a crop. Then I found out I couldn't get it spun in the U.S., in Mexico, or anywhere else in Central America without having it fumigated upon leaving the country and being imported into the other countries, which is a fight we've had with the FDA for a long time. But anyway, so here I pledged to these farmers, if you can grow good organic cotton and get a good crop, I'll buy it from you. And it's sitting in their barns and it's literally getting ruined. And they're like, give me the money. Where's, you know, you said you were going to use this stuff. So we went through years of that. And then we finally got a spinning company in, I don't even remember where, to be able to import it because they knew the government. It was in El Salvador. And so they started spinning it for us. About the time we started getting really good yields and really figuring this is going to be the thing we can hang our hat on. We can build a company around this cotton all from Nicaragua. Climate change started to happen. These are non-irrigated farms, by the way. Very few farmers outside the U.S. who grow cotton irrigate their crop. They're too poor. So there's two seasons, rainy season and dry season. You plant and harvest around the rains. The rains stopped coming. They're supposed to come in April. They're supposed to come in May. They started coming in June. It was too late to plant. By the time they planted, the plants were stunted in their growth, and then their yields would be very low. I think we had a three-year contract, and on the first year, they had lost 20% of the crop. The second year, they lost like 40% of the crop, and the third year, the crop was virtually decimated. So once again, here we are with all these plans and orders for finished goods, and we can't even get our cotton on the ground. So then I went to Peru. We were already working in Peru a little bit because I felt like we had to have a climate balance, right? Climate change is happening, and this is back in, gosh, I 2002, maybe, maybe it was later than that, it was 2005 and six, I started working in Peru and I said to the Peruvian farmers, okay, this climate change thing is happening. What if it happens to you? How are you gonna mitigate this? And they were like, oh, we get water from the Andes. The water from the Andes runs through these rivers and there's these farming communities around all these riverbeds. They were like, we're not gonna ever have a problem, don't worry. The next year, they had a huge problem. I mean, I have pictures of the same field from year to year. And the first year, the plants are like four feet tall. And the second year, they're like four inches tall. We started a campaign to educate our customers with hang tags. And we're going to donate X number of cents from every camisole you buy or whatever to these farmers to get them potable water. We have to dig wells. We have to get them water. By the time we raised the money to get them the wells, they were literally underwater. They had had floods from the Andes and they were completely flooded out. So we lost that crop. 
So here I am, this relatively small company relative to the apparel industry in the world, and I'm feeling like I have to contract from two different hemispheres or at least two different continents to get just a consistent crop that I can work with. People don't understand that still to this day, small scale farmers are who feed the world. I think the last statistic I've read is like 60% of what we eat is grown by small scale farmers. Those guys are on the front lines of climate change. If you don't have enough money to have a sophisticated irrigation system, you live by nature. And if nature brings you water, then you eat. And if nature doesn't bring you water, you don't eat. It's just been a constant challenge. And it's also what inspires me to keep going. Because if we continue the way we're doing farming in this world, we're all going to perish. The handwriting's on the wall. And now finally, climate change is starting to hit developed countries. And so maybe we'll get something changed. What do you think that change might look like? That's a real interesting question. I always think that communities work best if they're limited in scope. And the whole idea of self-sufficiency, it's like when people talk about little hubs, right? I think that that would answer the climate crisis if we all could develop a community near us and try to be self-sufficient. In Michigan, farming communities are putting hoop houses with the goal of being able to feed everyone in the state of Michigan for 12 months out of the year. Now that it's eight degrees below zero today, that's a tall order. But I've seen miracle things with just local communities relying on hoop houses. So we have the intuition and the ability and the creativity to do this. We just have to really look at things differently, I guess. It just feels like there are very few things that scale without losing their soul, which maybe sounds super woo-woo. But I mean, even if you look at political change, you can have great leaders that inspire people. But if you want to really drive change, you need engagement in local communities from your local township all the way up to the presidency. You don't start at the presidency if you're going to drive real change. And it feels like in climate change, it's the same thing. Yeah, we can talk about the international policies, those are important, but we also need to understand how each of our communities can maybe sharing the same principles, but independently take action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, our company's in a growth mode right now, and we're hearing, as I mentioned, from larger and larger corporate players who want us to play at this scale, right? And then as we get into the greater fashion world, people are like, well, your product's too affordable, it's too cheap. Basically, you price your products too low. And I'm always getting pressure from our salespeople to raise our prices. But I always ask, what is it really going to do for us? I mean, first of all, our MO is to make clothing affordable. So we want people who choose to maybe not make millions of dollars in their careers, choose to do this, to be able to still afford a good pair of socks or leggings or whatever. I ask myself, what is it really going to do if I just keep raising my prices so that I can afford to pay all these programs from all these corporate players and then my neighbor can't buy my clothes? <laughs> really, what have we accomplished? I mean, it puts me under a lot more pressure. It puts us under a lot more financial stress to raise more money. And really, what does it do? I guess I've chosen to not grow our company as much as people expected or wanted or said I could. And I'm always like, so? <laughs> so what does that really do? That question of affordability, as you know, I ended up on the opposite end of the price spectrum. I was thinking about a metric the other day of return on environmental impact, which is 
for the set amount of the impact you have. Your return could be in social, it could be in jobs, it could be in quality of life, it could be in finances across the board. But for me, it felt like higher priced goods support more jobs and more families with a smaller environmental impact if done right. But at the same time, we're in a situation where due to the inequality that we have in this country and the stagnation of wages from large swaths of the population, affordability is a real question around clothing. I think I've struggled to balance this higher price that supports everyone in the supply chain and the desire for everyone to have the choice of organic. You just touched on that a bit, but in terms of the levers that you can pull around people to afford organic, it's the price of the end good, but it's also the wages that the person is making. It's also how you bring the product to market. And I think that's what I was trying to eliminate maybe post COVID is that we're trying to find efficiencies in our supply chain as partners with our suppliers so that we can bring product to market more affordably. Because of our price philosophy of retail price and who should be able to afford our clothing, we do put price pressure on our supply chain. But I like to think we do it in a different way than some of the huge corporate players, right? I find that, again, the closer we get to our supply chain and the more we feel like partners, the more they understand Oh, I see. You're not just taking this and using it as profit center for you. You're passing it on to the market and therefore the volume will naturally go up, which I know is a very different philosophy than the luxury market, but it's a constant challenge. It's a constant challenge. Yeah. I mean, I think the answer is a mix of all of the above. Right. But I think if we don't find a way to bring the price down for a large percentage of the goods that are being produced sustainably, it's going to be very difficult for that to be as widely adopted. I agree with you, and I think we need to bring the value of goods up as well. I have trouble even going into retail stores anymore now that the discount-driven market is so prevalent and designers are designing for these discount retailers. You just think of the landfills, it's just this whole pressure going downward with this circular system that's just not making any sense. Yeah, we do need to work with partnerships and supply chain to try and find efficiencies and bring prices down and be better. And we also need to put pressure on consumers to say this is valuable, like you did at Laszlo, I think, the perceived value of the product. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, Benet. I always learn so much talking with you and appreciate all that you've done. It was wonderful to have you. Well, likewise, you always make me think. <laughs> That's good. Thanks.